If you have your Bible this morning, open them up to the book of Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9. We're continuing our series, Prayer, Unleashing the Power of God in Your Life. As I said last week, this series is based upon the book by uh, pastor and author Mark Batterson entitled The Circle, the Circle Maker. Uh, this book, as I read this book, literally changed the way that I viewed prayer. From the very first, first moment that I started reading it until the last page when I put it down, it challenged my thoughts on prayer. And I realized as I read that book and as I began to think about prayer and think about the things that he mentions in that book and the scriptures that he pulls out, I realized that I'd not been giving prayer my full attention. I was just going through the motions. I had not been giving it my all. I had not made it a very important part of my life. And so as I read this book, and, and I read this book about nine years ago, and, and I've looked over it over the years and I've been challenged by it because I realized that prayer is a journey that we embark on and it's something that we should constantly be improving, constantly be um, getting closer and closer in our relationship with God through prayer. And so this journey I've been on was enabling me to help me change the way I pray. And so last week I invited you to join me on this journey. Last week I said we're all learners. We all are learning daily more about scripture, more about God, more about how to pray and communicate with God. And so I challenge you to commit to a 21-day prayer challenge where for 21 days you would do more in your prayer life than maybe you've done before, that you would spend more time with God praying, that you would be more intentional in your prayers, more specific in your prayers. And I'm, I'm excited about this series because I believe that as we go through this, it will challenge us to seek God on a whole new level. It will challenge us in our prayer life to seek God in ways maybe we haven't done before, not only on a personal level, not only in your own life, but I think also as a corporate level, as a church body, that if we can incorporate these things, if we can learn to pray this way, that I think it will change our church as well. Here's why I think that we have to seek God as never before as a church. We, we can't seek God as we've always done. We've got to seek him in a way we've never done before. Because if we want to see God bring people into this building, if we want to see God change lives, if we want to see God restore relationships, if we want God to break sinful habits in the hearts of people, then we're going to need to partner with God. And what that means is that we, we may look like when we think of all those things, we may look at our church, we may look at where we are and say, man, that's impossible. How in the world is any of that going to happen? Can I tell you, God works in the realm of impossibilities. God works in the realm of impossibility. We need to work like it depends on us, but can I tell you this, church, we need to pray like it depends on God. We work like it depends on us, but if we only work and we don't pray, then nothing's going to happen. We have to pray like it depends on God. And so as we begin this morning, I want us to be reminded of the theme verse that we looked at last week, John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, where it says, you can ask for anything in my name, Jesus speaking there, and he says, I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me anything in my name and I will 
do it. And we talked about the fact that we can ask anything in the name of Jesus as long as it's in his name and as long as it will bring glory to God. He said, I will do it. And I told you last week, this isn't a name it, claim it. This isn't a, 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 a um, prosperity gospel where I'm saying that, God, that this is what I need and you're going to give it to me. Jesus is saying, if you ask it in my name for my purpose, for my glory, and it is done, and it, when it's done, it brings the honor and glory to God, I will do it. And so let me, let me start off this morning by giving you three principles of a circle maker. Now remember, a circle maker is just one who is praying intentionally. We, we draw a circle in prayer in our minds and in our hearts, and we're praying. So three circle maker, maker principles. Number one, drawing a prayer circle sometimes makes us feel foolish. When, when we are specific in a prayer or we're drawing a circle and say, God, this is what I'm asking. God, this is what I want you to do. And we're, we're basically saying, God, this is what we want. Sometimes that can seem foolish. Remember, I talked about Honey last week, the circle maker, the way he got his, his namesake, his moniker, was the fact that he drew a circle. And not so much that he drew a circle, but the fact that after he drew that circle and he stepped inside that circle and he dropped to his knees and he began praying to God for rain, the, the, the point that is, makes him foolish is the fact that he said, and God, I will not leave this circle until you send rain. You see, he didn't give himself an out. He didn't make a semicircle. He didn't make a half circle. He made a complete circle and said, God, I'm not leaving till you answer. See, sometimes when we pray to God and we're so determined that, God, I want you to answer this, sometimes it makes us feel foolish. Sometimes doing what God wants or praying and, and following God makes us feel foolish. Think about Noah. How foolish it must have looked for him building a boat in the middle of a desert, building a giant boat and saying it's going to rain and no one had ever heard of rain. How foolish the Israelite army looked marching around Jericho and blowing trumpets. I mean, the people of Jericho probably thought these people are crazy. What are they going to just march around us every day and, and do nothing and be in silent? Think about David, a little shepherd boy coming out to a giant Goliath with only a slingshot. Man, that's a foolish act, is it not? Think about the, the, the wise men, the magi, leaving their homes and following a star to Timbuktu. Think about Peter getting out of a boat to walk on the water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. But the results speak for themselves. I mean, Noah was saved from the flood because he followed a foolish thought. The Israelites, the walls of Jericho came down because they did what they were supposed to do. David defeated Goliath. The wise men got to experience the birth of the newborn Savior. They got to see Jesus as a child and the Messiah. And Peter got to walk on water. None of the other disciples got to do that. You see, sometimes when we pray these prayers, when we draw a prayer circle, sometimes we feel foolish. Look, if we're not willing to step out of the boat, we'll never walk on the water. If we're never willing to march around the city, the walls will never fall down. If we're not willing to follow the star, we will miss out on the greatest adventure of our life. And so sometimes being a prayer, drawing prayer circles and praying for certain things and asking for certain things sometimes can seem foolish that we're asking for those things. Sometimes drawing circles and praying for big dreams. Sometimes we think, man, that's just too big. Why do I need to pray for that? Let's, let's think of something smaller. 
And so because we feel like if we're praying for something too big, that's foolish. Why, why would God ever do that? Why would God ever answer that prayer? But can I tell you, sometimes the will of God involves looking foolish in our lives for Him. Secondly, big miracles often require big risks. If we want to see something, God do something amazing in our lives, if we want to see God do an amazing miracle, sometimes that requires us taking big risks. And why is that? I think it's because there are times when God requires us to be a part of His miracle. And, and why does He do that? Why does God incorporate us as part of His miracle? I mean, couldn't God do it without us? Yes, but it is a way that God uses to grow our relationship with Him. When we partner together and we do what we can and God does what He can do that He can only do, and then He gets the praise, He gets the honor, and He gets the glory. Because when we partner with Him and something amazing gets done, it brings Him honor and glory, and it shows people that it's His it's His. Um, actions that brought about that miracle. How many times in our own lives have we taken credit for something God did? Because it wasn't amazing. It wasn't huge. So we kind of took credit for it. We prayed and it happened. Well, I, you know, I had a part in that. I did that. And we really don't. God does it all. But sometimes God uses us. The, the things God wants us to do is he wants us to step out in faith. I mean, what, what did he tell Peter? Peter said, Lord, if that's you, when they were on the Sea of Galilee and the storm, it was storms and the waves were crashing and he saw Jesus walking on the water and the disciples didn't know who it was and they said, who is it? And he said, it's, it's I, it's Lord. And he, Peter said, well, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out. And Jesus said, Peter, come. Well, what did Peter have to do? He first had to take that risk. He had to believe that when he stepped over to the side of that boat, no one had walked on water before. No human being had ever walked on water. And Peter had to take that risk of faith and say, when I step out of this boat into this raging waters, I'm not sinking. He, he had to take that step of faith. Listen, when we are praying for big things, when we're praying for big miracles, God sometimes says, you got to step out on faith. You step out on faith. You risk something. And then I'm going to come through and I'm going to show you what I can do. Look, Pony had already, he had already had his um, reputation as a rainmaker. I mean, he had prayed many times before and God had sent rain for the Israelites. But he was willing to risk his reputation this time by praying for rain one more time and saying, God, I'm not moving out of this spot until you send rain. I am risking my reputation. I'm risking that everyone knows that I, when I pray, it rains, but I'm, I'm going a step further. This time, I'm not just praying. I'm praying that you do it now, God, and I'm not leaving until you do it. He had to risk that reputation of that. Look, the greatest chapters in history always begin with risk. If you never build a boat like Noah, you'll never be saved from the flood. Again, if you never get out of the boat like Peter, you'll never walk on water. You and I need to understand there are risks involved sometimes in serving God. God wants us to step out on faith. You know what bothers me so many times is we as Christians and, and as churches in general, so many times we say we trust God, but we only do things if we know we can accomplish it. 
if, if, if we say, okay, I know I can do this, and so we're, gonna, we're, we're saying we're stepping out on faith, but we know we have a cushion that if, it, if God doesn't come through, we're okay. Listen, that's not risk, and that's not faith. Faith is saying God is telling us, you need to do this. You need to do this, and when you do this, you step out on faith, and you say, I'll do it. God says, I'll come through for you then. It's not knowing the outcome, but knowing we know a God who does. And so we sometimes have to take these big risks for miracles. The third principle is this. If you don't take the risk, sometimes you're going to forfeit the miracle. There's a reason that when you read your Bible, there are names like Noah and Abraham and Moses and Rahab and Ruth and David and Peter. They were willing to take risks for God. Can I tell you this? You cannot build God's reputation. You cannot build who God is and show God glory if you're not willing to risk your reputation sometimes. If we don't risk our reputation by looking foolish sometimes, by people not understanding why we're doing what we're doing, but we are doing it so that when God shows up and shows off, God gets the glory for it. And if we don't take that risk, sometimes we miss out on the miracle. If Peter would have never got out of that boat, if he hadn't have taken that risk to step out of that, off that boat into that raging water, he never would have experienced the miracle of walking on water. Never. If the wise men had never left their hometown to follow a strange star in the sky, they never would have met the Messiah. You see, if we don't take the risk sometimes, we forfeit the miracle that God wanted to do in our life. Think about the children of Israel. The previous generation forfeited their right to enter the land because they would not take the risk to go in and trust God and conquer the land. They said, we can't do it. And so God said, because you disobeyed, because you won't do it, this generation will not enter the land. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that prior generation died off. And then their children and their grandchildren went in and possessed the land. And they didn't get to see the miracle of God conquering that land for them. Why? Because they wouldn't take the risk. Because they didn't believe they could do it. And they couldn't. But they also didn't believe God could. See, when we don't take the risk, we're in essence saying, God, you can't do this. We don't trust you, God. And so if we don't take the risk, sometimes we forfeit the miracle. Can I tell you, God is sovereign. God is God. And I believe God is up to something in this world. I believe God is wanting to do something amazing in this world. God is not through. There are people that are getting saved. There are Places where God is um, being shared to people that have never heard of him. And their lives are being changed. And their, their communities and their villages are being transformed. God is up to something in this world. And I don't want to forfeit what God wants to do through me to do through somebody else. I want to be a part of what God is doing. Too many times we forfeit the miracle because... We look at our limitations. We look at what we have and we forget that we have a God that is big and that we forget that we have a God that is without limitations. Can I tell you this? I am little. I am small. But God is great. God is big and we need to remember that. 
Because if we don't remember that we serve a God who is big, that we serve a God who is great, that we serve a God who is mighty, we will never pray big prayers. We will never pray stuff that is out of our reach because we forget that God is the God that can do those things. I want to share with you a miracle in the Bible I believe illustrates this principle quite well. It's known as the feeding of the 5,000. It's in Luke chapter number 9. We'll read that in just a moment. It's one of the most amazing miracles Jesus ever performed. It kind of set the stage of where we are. Um, it, it's Jesus and his disciples were becoming very popular. Um, and, and masses of people were gathering around him. And they were following him. And they were wanting to hear his teachings. But they were wanting to see his miracles as well. And Jesus had just recently sent the disciples out two by two. And he had given them the power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And so they had the power to do miracles themselves. Jesus had given them that power. And so now they've come back together. They've come to the area of Bethsaida. And they are here now. And they're spending some time with Jesus. And this is what happens. In verse number 10, it says, when the apostles returned, when, when they come back, they told Jesus everything they had done. And then he slipped quietly away with them toward the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. And he welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. Now late in the afternoon, the twelve disciples came to him and said, Send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There is nothing to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said, You feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Or, or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. And Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up toward heaven, and he blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and the fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up. Twelve baskets of leftovers. I want us to take us a few moments this morning, and I want us to break down this miracle this morning. And I want you to notice three things as we look at this miracle this morning. Number one, I want you to notice in this miracle the will of God. I want you to notice what God's will is in this miracle. Because God has a will. He, he just doesn't do anything without a purpose. He has a purpose. He has a will that he wants to accomplish in this miracle. Look at verse number 12. The disciples it said it was late in the afternoon. And the 12 disciples came to Jesus. Came to him and said Lord. Look you need to send these people away. You need to send the crowds away to the nearby villages. And to the nearby farms. So they can find food. And they can have lodging for the night. Because there's nothing to eat here. And there's no place to stay. This is a remote place. Now. When we read this. We, we need to understand this. The concern that the disciples had is a very legitimate concern. I mean, they were thinking about these people. They were looking at these people and saying, we've got a lot of people here. We've got a mass of people here. And we are in a place that is remote. What they're saying is they were up in the mountain areas. They were not near the villages. They were not near the cities. They had come outside the towns. They were up in the mountains. And so the disciples are coming to Jesus and going, hey, you know, Jesus, it, it, we're you see all these people? You see where we're at? There's nothing around us. 
there, there's no place to stay. You need to send them away. You need to send them back so they can travel. It's early enough. They can get back to the villages. They can get back to the towns. They can find food, and they can find a place to stay. Because up on the mountains, it's not a good place to spend the night. It gets cold, and it gets rough up on the mountains. And so this concern they're telling Jesus. Now, what I find interesting is they say this to Jesus like Jesus doesn't know what's going on. You know, hey, Jesus, do, do you realize what time it is? Do you realize where we're at? You, you need to do something, Jesus. You know, just in case you're not understanding the circumstances, you need to send these people away. Now, we look at that and think, well, how, how crazy can the disciples be? But have we not done that? Have you not ever been in a situation where you've prayed, Lord, do you realize what's going on now? Just in case you didn't understand, let me fill you in. Let me tell you what's going on in my life right now. Let me show you what's happening in my life. Like Jesus doesn't already know what's going on in our lives. Like Jesus doesn't understand what we're going through. Look, he is God. And so how does Jesus respond to them? How, what does he say to them when they say, you need to send these people away? He just says, basically, you feed them. You feed them. Now, can I tell you? To the disciples, that was a foolish thing to them to say. You feed them. You take these people and you feed them. Now, that was his will. That was his command. Jesus gave them a command. He said, you guys feed them. Don't send them away. You feed them. Now, he's, Jesus is specific in what he wants them to do. He is very specific. He wants the disciples to give them something to eat. Now, I'm wondering if maybe one of the disciples, and, and I think maybe Peter might have been the one to say this, because Peter was always the one that spoke up, probably think, said, Lord, could you repeat that? Because it, it kind of sounded like you said, you feed them. Like you want us to do it. Like, can, can you repeat yourself, Lord? Because maybe, maybe we misunderstood you. Maybe you, you meant to say, send them away so they could feed themselves. Again, in defense of the disciples, this seems like a ridiculous command. They're in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus wants them to feed this massive crowd. Look, there's only 12 of the disciples. And the Bible says there's 5,000 men there, which means by the time you had women and children, estimates could be this crowd could be anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people that's gathered around this mountainside. And so the disciples, 12 of them, are looking out over this crowd and going, say, what? Feed them? Lord, what do you mean feed them? That would be like me coming to one of you this morning and saying, okay, and I don't know how much Mount Vernon Stadium holds. I don't know how many people it holds. Anybody got an idea? 3,000 people, 2,000, I don't know. However big it is. And I said, Mount Vernon High School Stadium is packed with people. Brother Jerry, go feed them. You'd think I was crazy, wouldn't you? How in the world am I going to feed that? These disciples are going, Jesus, what do you mean feed these people? Now, in case you think Jesus didn't understand what was going on, let me give you what John says about this event in John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. John says, when Jesus looked up and he saw this great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Where can we get enough food for these people to eat now? But look at this. He said, he asked this only to test him. 
or he already knew or had in mind what he was going to do. Now, you ever wonder, why did Jesus specifically ask Philip? Why did he say, Philip, why did he single Philip out? Well, later on, if you read in John's gospel, you'll find when Jesus called them as disciples early on in the book that Philip was from Bethsaida. That was the area he grew up. So Philip would know this area. He would know where the villages were. He would know where the markets were. He would know where they could buy food. And so he was saying, hey, Philip, where can we go to buy food? Because you know, you know this area. You grew up in this area. And he asked that not because he really wanted an answer. But he asked that to test Philip, to see what Philip would say, because the Bible says Jesus already knew what, it was going, what he was going to do. And I find that so interesting. I find it interesting that Jesus already knew what he was going to do, even before he asked the disciples. So why did he say that? Why did he do that? It's because he's trying to get the disciples to grow. He's using this as an opportunity to test the disciples to grow them. Do you know that God tests us at times? God sends tests in our life for specific reasons. God will put you in situations sometimes in your life just to test you. Sometimes he tests us to see what's in our heart. Sometimes he tests us to stretch our faith and to grow our faith. And sometimes the test is both of those combined. Sometimes it's to see what's in our heart and to cause us to grow. Think about this. Jesus could have done this miracle by himself. He, he, he could have just said, this is what's going to happen. But he said, I want you guys to do something. I want you to feed them. You say, why did he ask that? Well, think about what they had just done. If you read the first part of chapter number nine, you find that he had sent them out to, to two by two and told them to heal the sick, cast out demons. They, they had... They had the power to do things. They had done some miracles. They could heal people, and they could cast out demons in people. And so now Jesus is saying, okay, you, you've had the power to do that. Now, do you, do, you, do you trust the power enough? Can you feed these people? He's giving them a test and saying, okay, how much more do you trust me? You, you trusted me to do those things. Do you trust me to say, okay, Lord, we're going to do this? They didn't do that. He was stretching their faith. God's will sometimes seems foolish to us. And sometimes God's will for our life or what he wants us to do is stretching our faith. It's testing us because he wants to know where we are. He wants to know what we're thinking of. This command to feed the people seemed an impossibility. And that brings us to the second thing. You have the will of God. But then we also see the thoughts of men. We, we see what God wanted. We see what Jesus wanted. You go feed them. And so we see how they respond. What were the disciples thinking? Well, we don't really have a, to guess because the disciples thinking it do what we do. They, they either try to figure out how to do it on their own, apart from the power of God, or they freeze up and do nothing. And that's what the disciples did. They, they started searching for food. They started going, okay, well, we got to feed these people. Hey, hey, do you got any food? Do you got any food? Hey, anybody got any food? Nobody, nobody planned. You all came out here, and you followed us out to this mountain, to this remote place, and none of you brought any food? Man, you people aren't smart. Of course, they could probably say that about them because they didn't have any food. So they're searching all over this place, and they're doing the mental math and going, okay, 
we, we don't have enough. And so this is what happens. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. Do, do you want us to go buy food for this whole crowd? They said, they, they, what they're saying is, we don't see any way possible, Jesus, to feed these people. And, and we don't have any plans to go and buy food because we don't have enough money. Again, look what John says in his gospel, John 6, 7 through 9. It says, Philip answered him after Jesus asked that question, Philip, where do we buy food? Philip answered him and said, well, Lord, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have how much? A bite. Just, just a bite of food. Not even a meal, just a bite. And so he says, there's no way we can do it, Lord. We, we don't have enough money. We cannot go and buy enough food. And so one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, well, we, we found this little boy, and this little boy has five little loaves of barley and two small fish. He said, we, we got some, this is all the food we can muster up. This is all the food we can get. And he said, but how far will that go among so many people, Lord? There, there's no way we can feed enough people with five little bitty loaves it's not like a loaf of bread you go to the store and buy. These These were like little bitty personal size little loaves, just five little biscuit type things and a couple of small little fish that this boy was going to have for his lunch. And so the disciples said, there, we, we have no way to do that. Look, this is where a lot of us get stuck when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our prayer life with God. We look at what we have. We look at God wants us to do we do the math in our head, and it doesn't add up. When we get focused on what we have and not focused on what God can do, it, it causes problems in our life. Look, I, I can relate to this. Look, when God called me into the ministry, I delayed in following the call. I looked at what I had. I, I'm a very shy person. I, I'm, I'm, and I've told you all this, and I mentioned it Wednesday, I'm, I'm an introvert, really. I'm shy. Uh, I didn't feel like I had enough education, enough knowledge, even though I'd been in church all my life, and I've taken courses, and I've done Bible, and I've got a degree. I just didn't think I had enough. I didn't think I was enough to do what God wanted me to do, and so I delayed in following the call of God. Now, I didn't delay in serving God. I served God everywhere I was at. I served God. We were involved in church. We were we were doing things. I would teach class. I would do anything. But I wasn't doing what God called me to do. And I would bounce from job to job to job to job to job because I was miserable, because I wasn't doing what God wanted me to do. And finally, I said, okay, God, this is what I have. This is what you want me to do. If you want me to do that, God, you got to do something with what I have. And he did. Listen, sometimes we get so caught up on what we have and our limits that we forget we serve a God who can do anything. That can take us and make us into what he wants us to do. But I ask you this morning, maybe there's a dream, maybe there's something God is wanting you to do. And you've been holding back and saying, God, I can't do that. God, there's no way I can do this. Because I'm looking at what I have, I'm looking at what you want me to do, and it doesn't add up, God. And I tell you this morning... Maybe you're just that one prayer circle away from giving in to God and letting God use you the way he wants to do. 
You see, we have the will of God. God says, you feed them. The thoughts of men says this, God, this is what I have, and this is what you want me to do, and there's no way it's going to work. It just can't be done, God. I've only got this amount of talent or this amount of ability, and you want me to do this. It doesn't work, God. But then the third thing we see in this miracle is the most important thing. We see the power of God. The will of God says, feed them. The thoughts of men said, Lord, we have food, but it's not enough, and there's no way we can do it. And God comes along and says, well, I have the power. I can do it. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up toward heaven, and he blessed them. And then he began breaking the loaves into pieces. And I love this. He kept giving the bread and the fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. Remember, Philip said, Lord, we, it would take a half a year's wages to buy enough bread just to give them a bite. Just to give them one little bite of bread. And Jesus is breaking these little five loaves and two fishes. And verse 17 says, they all ate as much as they wanted. It was a buffet. It was like going to Golden Corral. They just kept eating and eating and eating and eating. And they got to eat as much as they wanted. And then it said, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers, enough food for the disciples and more. You see, I want you to see the math here because it doesn't add up. In terms of addition, five little loaves of bread plus two little fish means seven little items of food. That's it. And when we look at that, we say, what is that among so many? But God takes that five little loaves of bread, that two little fish, and it equals fifteen to 20,000 with a remainder of 12. And that just isn't math that we can figure out. That isn't math that we understand. Not only does God multiply the meal so that it feeds these people, but they end up with more leftovers than what they started with to begin with. Look, that only happens in God's economy. If you take what little you have in your hand and you put it in God's hand, God can take that little bit and make it into something that, and it just doesn't add up, but what it does is God multiplies it because we give him what we have. I mean, think about this. Can you comprehend how much, how little they actually had and yet how God multiplied it? I mean, can you imagine the disciples just watching Jesus breaking the bread and it's like it just never ended. He just kept breaking it putting it out, go take it. Another, They make a pass of people, come back. Jesus is still breaking bread, breaking fish. And they're probably thinking, five bread, two fish. Where's all this coming from? And they take another pass to another group of 50, come back. Jesus is still breaking bread. He's still breaking fish. And to them, they're like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. Can I tell you, there are times in our life when we remember all the good things God has done for us. There are times in our life when we remember how God has blessed us, how God has accomplished great things through us, and we remember all those good things, but then there's times that we face a new Jericho. We face something that just is scary to us. We face something that we don't understand, and we forget all the good things God's done, and we focus on the problem, and we focus on the difficulty, and we forget that God is the same God that got through those He's the same God that can do something here if we would trust him. I think God was trying to root a question in the minds of these disciples 
so that every time something happened in their life, they would think, this is what I have. This is God, what God wants me to do. And God can do it because there is no limit to the power of God. We have seen it in action. But not only did Jesus feed this 5,000 in a group, but later on, it says Jesus fed another group of 4,000. But that one, the disciples were probably, okay, we got this figured out. We know he can do it now. Listen, when you've seen God work in your life once, you ought to trust him that he can do it again. And when you go in prayer, you need to be able to say, Lord, I know you've accomplished it once, and I'm, I'm asking, I am praying that you will do it again. Do it again for me. As we close this morning, I want to share another quick scripture with you. It illustrates this as well. It's in the Old Testament, a miracle of of similar making. The children of Israel had been complaining. They didn't like the manna. They were tired of the manna. All we get is this manna. They were talking about manna. And it, and when we were in Egypt, man, we got to eat fish. We got to eat leeks. We got to eat onions. We, man, we got all this stuff. They forgot that while they were there, they were still slaves. They were just thinking of the food. That's all. They were like, man, we had all the food we wanted to eat, but we weren't free. And so they're like, all we get is this manna. So they're complaining. And so Moses goes to God and said, God, these people of yours, again, are complaining. They're griping. They're sick of this man, and they want meat. And so God says, okay, go give them meat. Tell them you're going to get meat. And in Numbers chapter 11, this is what Moses is saying. Moses responded to the Lord. God, okay, this is kind of like the disciples. Uh, Lord, just in case you don't remember, there's 600,000 foot soldiers with, here with me. Now, that's just the men. That's just those 20 years old and older that were able to fight. 600,000. That doesn't count wives. That doesn't count men that are older, that can't serve. That doesn't count children. So, I mean, there's a lot of people there. And he says, and yet you say, I will give them meat for a whole month. Look, Lord, even if we butchered all of our flocks and all of our herds, would that satisfy them? Even if we caught all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? God, what, what are you thinking, Lord? We can't do this. And the Lord said to Moses, has my arm lost its power? Have I lost the ability to do something, Moses? He said, now you will see whether or not my word comes true. So Moses had to, do the, Moses had to be the foolish one to go out in front of the people and say, hey, tomorrow morning when you go out, God's going to give you enough meat to eat for a month. Can you think what the people laughed at him? Oh, really? All we get is this man and you're going to say God's going to give us enough meat for a whole month? Guess what God did? He caused an east wind to come in, brought quail so plentiful that it was piled on the ground and they were just collecting. And after that month, you know what happened? They were sick of meat. They were complaining. Oh, we see his quail. We're so sick of this. But can I say God had the power to do what God said he could do. Let me give you three quick things as we close this morning. The will of God will stretch your faith. Some final thoughts. God's will. When you have to do God's will... It will stretch your faith. When you stop allowing God to stretch you, you know what happens? We become stagnant. We stop seeing the miracles that God wants to perform in our life. The key is to keep allowing God to stretch you, to keep allowing God, uh, keep allowing ourselves to trust in God by praying bold prayers, by praying and dreaming big dreams and taking a risk to look foolish to build God's reputation. Sometimes God wants to stretch our faith. Secondly, God can multiply what little you have when you place it in his hands. He can take that small amount you have and multiply it. That's how God always does it. 
He took the fishes, he took the loaves of bread, all, the, all that the disciples had, and he multiplied it. So let me ask you, what do you have in your hands right now that you're holding back? What do you have in your hands right now that you could put in the hands of God and let him multiply it? And let him use it. I mean, I think about our church. We tend to think sometimes we're too small. There's no way we can accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. Can I say we may be small, but we serve a God who is big. We serve a God who can take our smallness if we give it to him, if we allow him to have it, and he can multiply it for his kingdom. The little boy had nothing of significance to offer this huge crowd, but he gave. What are you willing to give to God? Number three, faithfully circle the promises of God and trust him to perform the miracle. When you're praying, trust that God is going to come through. There's only so much that you and I can do. Most of the time, God requires us to participate in the miracle. You know what? It takes no faith for us to sit here this morning. It takes no faith on our part to just pray, God, build our church. God, send people in. It takes no faith to do that. It takes no faith to say, God, we, we want these chairs to be full of people. God, would you please do that, Lord? It takes no faith to do that. But you know what it does take faith to do? It takes faith to pray that, but then walk out these doors and speak to people and talk to people and invite people and encourage people and bring, ask people to come in and, and, and walk out and position yourself to get ready to receive the miracle God wants to do. You realize Jesus didn't just perform the miracle. He put the disciples to work to help facilitate it. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, you take these men, you put them in groups of 50. You set them around the hill. Can you imagine 15 to 20,000 people, how long it took the disciples to get these in 50 groups of 50? I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a lot of groups of people all over this mountainside. And so the disciples had to work. They had to do their part. Look, I believe God wants to bless Macon Baptist Church. I believe it with all my heart. But I also believe he wants us to participate. He's just not going to do it unless we're willing to do what we can do. The disciples did what they could do, and then God did what only he could do. So are we going to trust the will of God? Are we going to say, God, this is what you want us to do? Lord, this is what I have, and, and it's not much, God, but I'm willing to give it to you. Because I know you want to do something amazing. I know you want to do something remarkable. And so we're giving you what we have. And we're asking you to show your power and multiply it and do what only you can do.